on the magnolia trees in the meadow. King harvest is surely come. A dry summer, then come fall. Which I depend on most. Mm. What a what a theme. What a theme for the organic farm stand. I always wanted to hear the whole thing. Never got a chance to. <laughs> My name is Richard Hill. This is the Organic Farm Stand, coming to you the first and third Thursday of each month at noontime from 12 to 1. And we have a great show, a really, really, really great show for a change. Just kidding. That's uh, my homage to uh, Al Franken. And, uh, but it's really, it's really going to be good because we have, as usual, Steve Mono from Massaro Farm will be here. That's a community-supported agricultural farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Steve is the farm manager. And, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. And, uh, but we have two other guests today, too. It's going to be great. We have... Um, this is the first Thursday of the month, so we have Vincent Kay, the uh, proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. He is the honeybee expert, and he is has quite an adventure today. I think he's roaming the fields uh, north of New Haven, and so we're going to hear from him at around 12.15. And then at 12.30, we have a special guest, Scott Nelson, who is the... Um, let me see. He, he's he, he's the uh, one of the litigating attorneys for Public Citizen, and he's going to be talking to us about the very recent Supreme Court ruling, which curtails the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating uh, industries that are contributing to greenhouse gases. And so that will be coming up at twelve thirty today. Scott Nelson. Uh, an expert on this issue and an attorney who litigates these issues will be with us at 1230. Meanwhile, let's go back to Masaro Farm. Steve Mono, we, we actually we have a couple of questions for you today, uh, but let's let's get start with your update and then I'll try to inject uh, these questions that uh, people have put on on the on the docket, so to speak, that uh, perhaps you could address. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, this is, a, this is a, you know, a fun and full time on the farm, you know, early July here. Um, happily, we, we haven't had um, too high heat yet, uh, but it is hot and the summer crops are coming in. We started harvesting our zucchini and yellow squash um, last week. We've got just the first color on some of our tomatoes in our high tunnels, and uh, the tomatoes in the field will start getting some color, you know, a little later in the month. Probably the next time we talk, we'll be um, starting to pick a little bit from the field. Um, we've got, you know, we're seeing some of the first um, peppers start to take shape, you know, and for folks who might want to harvest green peppers, that can come soon. It takes a bit longer, another couple weeks to gain to gain color, and it's really august where we start seeing our own um you know red peppers and, and orange peppers start coming in and yellow peppers uh but it's an exciting time to see all these things all, all the sort of summer fruit coming together you know as, as we move past some of this, the spring green so you know the last month we've been harvesting uh you know lots of lettuce and, and kale and some chard and beets and carrots and 
and you know we'll continue with some of those things but it's nice to add on uh some of these these uh summer specialties that we'll have for the next couple months ahead um, and I know that there, I think there are some questions coming about garlic. Well, I should say this is a, you know we're we're looking at harvesting our garlic soon too. So um, you know this is this is a marker. You know, often people look at the Fourth of July as the time you know just after that to start thinking about pulling their garlic up. Yeah, I guess uh, that was a question from uh, our co-producer uh, Chris Ferrio. He said, "What is the best time to start har- harvesting garlic?" And uh, you know I know the question is uh, important because if you harvest it too soon, you're not going to get the full uh, potential of that garlic in terms of the size and the fully full, fully developed cloves. So mm-hmm. how do you judge that? I mean, individual in terms of individual gardens and the conditions that may per, uh, obtain in those specific areas. Right. So, so if you've got garlic in your garden or on your farm or in your yard somewhere, you know what you'll what you should start seeing now is the the tops of the plants are starting to brown and they're starting to to wither, um, and that's a good sign. You know that they're that they're drying out and they're going to be ready to be harvested. Um, so depending on where you are in the state, if it's a little warmer, it's a little cooler and how much rain you've had, some folks might have started pulling it already, but usually you're starting to see the, the, the plant die back a little bit. Uh, and so those brown tops, uh, you know, it's lost its luscious green from the spring, and it's starting to die back a little bit, starting at the tip um, and making its way down the plant. So once you start seeing signs of that, I think you'd be okay to start pulling them out. Um, I, you know, I think here in July, you're not going to gain much more size on your garlic. So this is a good time to pull them in. Um, and so what we did, you know, I think a few weeks ago, we talked about our garlic scapes, and those are sort of a highlight uh, of, of June. You know, so if you're growing a hard neck garlic, um, it produces a, a sort of circular little little flower that comes off that we cut that off and we, and we eat that, that garlic scape. It's a really great treat um, for the spring, and that sends energy back down, you know, uh, into the roots of the plants and helps make that bigger bulb. Mm. So... So we've we've done that, you know, in in early June and mid June, pulling off those scapes. Uh, if you're growing a soft neck garlic, it doesn't do that. And so, the, but the nice thing with a soft neck garlic is if you like to uh, make a make a garlic braid and tie it up, that that the softness of the neck above the garlic bulb is what allows you to tie into a nice braid. So you can't do that with a hard neck garlic, but you can with the soft. Um, so, you know, folks are wanting to keep keep a longer neck when they pull up their garlic for, for braiding. You can do that. But generally, I recommend cutting just a few inches above uh, the bulb. So when once you're harvesting the garlic, you, you want it to dry out, especially if you're going to save it for a long time, whether you're saving seed to plant in the fall in maybe October or November, uh, or you just want your own garlic to last through the winter. It's really important at this time that it, that it dry out well. So um, one of the ways we can help dry it out is by um, cutting off the greens a- above the bulb so that there's no moisture left in the plant that will make its way down into the bulb. So what we do here when we harvest, we cut off those tops. We leave just a few inches of stem. You know, we brush off any any uh, dirt around it. Now, it's the conditions recently here, we haven't had any rain, so it'll be dry. Uh, so I don't expect the bulb to be wet. And then we bring all that garlic into our greenhouse. Uh, we keep a table open, you know, sort of a long, long table. Um, 
that's got um, a sort of a graded table with vents with, with vents on it, so it's not a hard surface, not a completely you know uh, hard surface to allow airflow through it. Uh, and it'll cure in our in our greenhouse uh, for about three weeks or so. Now, the greenhouse is a nice space because it's well ventilated, it's warm, it won't get wet, uh, and we have a shade cloth over it so that it's not fully bright in there. So m most folks will traditionally bring their uh, their garlic into a barn. So if you've got space in a barn to to hang it and put it, so it's you know the idea is that it's uh, well ventilated, it's going to stay dry. Um, and barns are often a good place for that. But in your home, you know, it might just go somewhere in your kitchen. Uh, might, you might have space in a, in a basement, I guess. But you, got, you want ventilation so that the, the air will blow through it, uh, and then that'll help store for a long time. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a good full description of all the different uh, aspects of garlic harvesting. Steve Munno, thank you very much. And uh, let's let's go move to the other question that we have. This one is actually from Scott Nelson, who's going to be our guest at 1230. He, he said, well, as long as it's the organic farm stand, I'm going to get my question in. And uh, I'm not sure if you have it in front of you, but I, I do, so I can read it. Um, and he says, Steve says, uh, Scott says, I planted a few row, rows of green beans using seeds the packages said were bush, bush beans, bush beans. Some of the plants are sending out tendrils that look more like pole beans. Should I try to stake them up, or will it be okay to just treat them as bush beans and let them lie on the ground? Yeah, it's a good question, and this is a, a fun time of year for for beans too. So if you, you know if you're like Scott and you've got beans planted in your garden, uh, you might be starting your first harvest now. So you should see you know a flower. You're going to see a tendril like that. And, and Scott's right; these tendrils are often a sign of a, a bean that wants to wrap and grow. But sometimes the bush beans will have a little tendril or half tendril as well. So. Obviously, without a picture, it's going to be, you know, or a closer look, it's going to be tough for me to say for sure. But, you know, if, if the seed packet said, uh, you know, bush bean, I'm going to assume it's a bush bean. Um, you know, and there's lots of different types of bush beans around. We, we grow three here. We grow, a, you know, a green bush bean called Provider. We grow a, a purple one and a yellow one. Um, you know, and they, they all have a little bit of a tendril on there. Um, but, you know, if, if you're inclined, Scott, you, you can throw a stake in there and see what it does. You know, the plants that want to um, vine and wrap will we'll do that naturally. Uh, that's that's part of what those tendrils will do. But, um, you know, pole beans are really fun to grow because because they climb so high and you can create a structure, whether it's um, whether you're using, you know, wood from your yard or from a tree or, or bamboo posts or if you're using, you know, any kind of um, – pre-created, you know, trellis that you want to use or a tomato cage or something like that. They're, they're fun to watch grow and then to, to pick the beans off, uh, you know, up at uh, standing height. Mm -hmm. Sometimes harvesting beans, you know, can be, you know, down low to the ground, uh, bending over, picking up a lot. Um, maybe you want a little bucket to come with you to turn over and sit while you pick some beans. Um, Right. If you've got bush beans out there to, to protect your back. Uh, yeah. But for now, Scott, I would say, you know, assume it's a bush bean, but, you know, you could try staking a couple and see, we'll see what happens. But I think you might be seeing just, just a, the sort of start of a half tendril. Well, there are probably a lot of us, including myself, who don't 
know, don't understand the distinction between bush beans and the climbing beans. What what does it mean, bush bean? I mean, how, how does that uh, how yeah, I, word come it's about? A good, it's a good question. So the bush, so what's talking about um, the, the sort of reference is that uh, it can stand on its own um, without falling over and... Um, uh, and won't won't get too tall. Whereas a pole bean, we want them it's sort of a, a group of beans, different varieties that will that want to climb. And if you give it something to climb up, like a vine, it will do so. So a bush bean will never get that tall. It's going to stay squat. It might be, you know, might depending on how tall you might get to knee height or maybe waist oh. height, and then the the beans are going to be hanging downward from that plant. Whereas a pole bean is going to climb nice and tall. Um, and uh, and the, the the beans will will hang hang from from there, uh, but they can be you know they can grow six eight ten feet tall depending on the variety. You can get some really tall pole beans. Um, you know, one of the classic ways to grow uh, beans would be you know along with squash and and corn, and people call that the three sisters of traditional uh, Native American plantings. And the the pole beans will climb up some of the the corn. Um, whereas, and then the winter squash will grow low and spread out. Um, so those three combine well. They're sort of nice companions because they're taking up different space. You've got a, a tall, straight corn providing a, a support for the pole beans, and then you've got uh, the squash growing growing low uh, and spreading over the ground. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks might have seen it, 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 seen pole beans in that fashion, and they're often often the pole beans are going to be dry beans that will you know there there may be some fresh pole beans as well, but. A lot of our dried beans are, are going to be pole bean types. Understood. Okay, let's uh, talk blueberries. If you uh, if you can uh, endure another conversation on that topic. Um, now, I can't remember if you said you have uh, a an orchard, so to speak, of blueberries at Masaro, uh, but. Um, the question I raised, I think, a couple of shows ago was, you know, how to protect your your blueberry bushes from uh, from birds. And um, so you, I think you suggested, if I'm not mistaken, some kind of cloth that allows, well, there's a lot of rumbling and stuff going on on that line. I'm not sure if it's your line or something else. But anyway... Um, yeah, you suggested. I think it, you might have said agricultural cloth or something like that that you can drape over the plant, which will allow sun to filter through, but will protect it from the birds. Can you uh, uh, reiterate that um, recommendation so we can? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So yeah, the birds. The birds want your blueberries. You know, if you're growing blueberries, the birds want to eat them. If you're growing, you know, really any kind of berries, the birds are going to get after them, and, and you know they. The birds are aware of the seasons and, um, you know, how, how fruit ripens and what's ready when. And so, um, you know, they're watching just like you are, and they're going to get in there. So we got to be careful. And, and um, the, what you can use to protect them, you need a physical barrier. Um, and so there's something that's simply called bird netting. Uh, and you can often, you know, sometimes it's uh, hardware or cloth, you know, a, sort of a, a mesh or a plastic that you can put over um, your plant. So if you've got a, a, a small number of plants, you might be able to create a little structure to drape the, um, the cloth over. Um, and if you go to an orchard, if you if anybody's out there going to do pick your own somewhere for blueberries, you, you might end up, 
you know, walking through some of that netting or, or a door that's built in to the blueberry patch, you know, which is surrounded by, you know, sort of a see-through mesh netting that sunlight, air, rain, all everything gets through uh, except for hopefully the birds. And so the, what is that cloth called and where do we get it? Yeah, um, so you might call it might simply be called bird netting, um, but there may be you know crossover use with something that's called a hardware cloth, and and you I, I bet you you know you can find it at a local hardware store, uh, you can probably find it at a local garden supply store or or or, or you know garden store nursery shop, uh, and you know you might find it at, at the bigger box stores like a like a Lowe's or Home Depot type place as well, uh, in their garden sections. All right, excellent. There's so much more to talk about on the topic of blueberries, but we'll we'll table that for the moment, and let's bring in our uh, bee man, our honeybee man, Vincent Kay, who is joining us from uh, several locations today in uh, a little bit north of New Haven. Vincent, are you with us? I am. I am. Are you there? Yes, we are. Thank you so much for being with us today. Vincent Kay is the proprietor of Soars into Plowshares Honey. And he joins us the first Thursday of each month to give us an update on his activities and on bee culture in general. I, I wish I could. I, I wish I could um, figure out where that rumbling is coming from, but I'm not it, sure. It might be the wind. We're at the top of a ridge here in Hamden, and we uh, we're uh, not working with bees today. We are actually finishing up uh, our garlic harvest. Oh, interesting. Uh, so okay. it, may, it may be the wind. We can see New Haven from here, but. We're up pretty high, and it's um, we we just finished uh, harvesting 80 bushels of garlic, Whoa. and um, it, it is a, a substantial chunk of garlic, and we've got three or four varieties. Uh, my crew, you may hear them whooping and hollering in the background, but uh, everyone has made it for lunch into the shade, and uh, the dogs have dug their holes under the truck and uh, <laughs> dusting themselves, and everyone's trying to stay cool. It's, it is so dry out here. It's unbelievable. Um, yes, uh, we, we have avoided, the, uh, as Steve mentioned, the, the heat of the summer so far. But we need rain so bad. And at this point, um, we just had to uh, go for, for broke on pulling the garlic because we have a lot of clay in the soil up here. Uh, the soil is actually almost a, a rusty red color. And when, when it dries out, it, it dries out. It's like a clay. And it just locks around the garlic bulbs in the ground, and you, you can't possibly pull them out. You'd have to shovel or or use a machine to to kind of uh, uh, rototill them up and out, and hopefully not damage them. We mostly pulled, and we did some shoveling of the garlic, but uh, we just finished this morning, literally a half hour ago. So we are um, we are done, <laughs> and uh, we're so happy to be so. But uh, we use a very similar method that Steve mentioned of um, clipping the tops of the garlic off as we go. And we bring it to a uh, greenhouse uh, with a 60% shade net uh, and an exhaust fan that runs constantly 24 hours a day. And we'll keep it in that greenhouse on wire benches probably for two to three months until it's either sold as food or we replant it for seed. Um, on our future crops of garlic uh, in November. And we also sell garlic to other garlic growers as seed. So um, that's the sort of uh, panorama of uh, our garlic empire at the moment. But uh, hmm. we are done and we're happy to be so because now we can switch over as of tomorrow morning uh, 
the crew will be putting on. I tell them it was hot out there in the field, but guess what? You're going to be in a bee suit tomorrow. Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. it doesn't get any cooler. And uh, and then, of course, you have the bees trying to get you. So it's uh, it, it's it's something. But it's um, we'll be uh, checking bees tomorrow. For uh, We have not started harvesting honey yet, um, but they look really good. Um, we've peeked in boxes, and um, the honey boxes above the queen excluder is uh, – they're, they're packed with bees, and you can see the, the beautiful white comb, uh, the new co- beeswax comb that the bees have created to put honey in. So uh, we know we have a honey crop waiting for us, and now we race against time uh, on that because, as you know, at this point in the season, everything is drying out. And, in, you know, we always talk about climate change and whether it's having an effect on local farms. And we certainly notice it as beekeepers and garlic growers. And one of the effects of that on bees is that the summers are hotter and drier and, and the blooming of flowers, um, they don't last as long and they don't produce as much honey. Um, it's, it's one of the things a bloom can go very quickly uh, in days um, and, and, and then it's over. And then the bees have to try to find another bloom, another source for nectar. So we know that that's happening but at this point in the season, uh, July through August, um, it's called the dearth. And that means that most of the, the flowers of substance uh, that have, are able to produce a, a surplus honey are basically um, dried up and gone. And so uh, the bees, and this is the, the, the art of beekeeping, it comes into play here because we always want to leave enough honey for the bees to survive because it is their food also pollen as well as honey but the mostly the honey that they've stored is going to keep them alive through this dearth this time when there's no flowers at all blooming or very few and um, at times they gather more water than nectar um, just to keep the hives cool and they um, consume the honey that they've stored so yes we, we begin harvesting honey but the art is as we open up each hive is to feel the weight of the hive and the size of the cluster of bees and say ah They've got about, say, 80 pounds of honey in this hive. Um, we think we can take 20 or 40 pounds of that honey and leave them the other 40, and that'll get them through until the goldenrod and the asters and the fall flowers start to bloom, the Japanese knotweed. Of course, everyone's um, uh, <laughs> desire to get rid of that, but it's a huge source of nectar for the honeybees. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're about to start that process, and... Um, we're looking forward to it very much because we know we've got a, a very good honey crop waiting for us. Vincent, what about white clover, which is uh, seems to be in profusion now and, and maybe throughout the summer? Uh, I've heard that that's a, a good uh, pollinator crop. The honeybees like it, and why, why doesn't that sustain them? For part it does. Of- I mean, here's the thing. Richard, we've had an enormous um, white clover honey crop. Um, if you've looked at um, baseball fields and, you know, um, lacrosse fields and other, other athletic fields uh, around the city and open spaces where um, they've mowed and kept it fairly open so that the clover this year, for, for whatever reason, I, I believe it's a biennial, um, there always will be some blooming, but this year was a very heavy bloom. And the bees... Get, have been gathering from it. Uh, if you notice the fields now, I mean, you'll see the, the haze of white in the grass mixed in, 
and that's all the bloom. But without rain, that bloom will not continue. So I would predict within the next week to 10 days, it will be gone. Hmm. And so it, it could sustain the bees this summer or throughout the summer, but without rain, it just won't happen. And um, it, it'll it'll trickle in, but it just again it needs constant moisture. And and uh, but so far it has been cooperating, and we have noticed now as the heat is starting to to happen and the dryness is settling in that the honeybees are on the clover very heavily. Um, we, we've noticed it around our garlic fields and actually in the fields because we have a nice blanket of white clover uh, in amongst the, uh, the garlic rows. Um, uh, clover is also a great binder of nitrogen and very good to have in your in your uh, plantings, not only for pollinators and honeybees, but for um, uh, the good goodness of the soil. It keeps the nitrogen in its uh, nodules underneath the surface, and uh, it's a great thing to plant. Red clover also, but the honeybees can't access the uh, the uh, nectar from red clovers, but bumblebees and other pollinators will. Um, I think it has to do with the length of the, the honeybee's tongue. It's just not long enough to reach into the, the flower pocket uh, to get the nectar. So in any event, but yes, the white clover is a great, and if there's any time that people are looking for a seed to plant for um, pollinators, that would be a wonderful um, investment uh, on your lawn and, and other spaces to just uh, seed that white clover seed. It's not cheap, but it's it's fairly reasonable in, in you know smaller quantities that, garden stores and you know if if everyone were to do it it has a great effect it's a great thing to do i think it's a fairly aggressive uh plant as well i mean it seems to be uh, on my lawn for example it seems to be uh moving quite quite uh expeditiously around the uh, the entire lawn and so I'm, I'm 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 wondering you know it might be considered you know like a fairly aggressive um, planting if you did it. You it know. does. I think it self-seeds itself and um, it will move across the lawn that way. I, I would like to mention the last time we talked I think we were in a bee yard and we were I was sitting next to a hive of bees and uh, maybe 20 feet away uh, one of the hives had swarmed while we were doing the interview and it, it was, I, I want to hmm. just report real quickly that uh, we did catch that swarm and it's now part of one of the apiaries in Madison uh, when it happened. So it was kind of fun to, to see it happen while we're doing the interview. And uh, the other thing that the honeybees are starting to do now, and they will do in the heat, is they um, start gathering propolis, which is a tree resin. And they gather that um, to waterproof and windproof the hives, getting them ready for winter. And in the heat of the summer is the only time they can gather it. And because it's malleable, it's it's like a, a pitch or a pine sap, and they bring it back to the hive. It's, it's often used in natural toothpaste, and it has an antiseptic property to it. But um, for the sake of the bees, they, they, they cover everything on the inside of the hive with it. It can become a, a bit of a, an annoyance as we're harvesting honey because it's, it's really like roofing tar. It's very sticky, but it's uh, got an, a, a pleasant aroma. And, um, but at this time of the year in the heat, you'll see the bees bringing that in and they just put it in all the cracks in the pores of the wood and um, any space that, that it, they feel like needs to be locked down and uh, somehow preserved forever. I mean, <laughs> and it, it's incredible. It's, it's incredible. Napoleon used it to waterproof his ships. And hmm. 
Stradivarius used it in a varnish for his violin, so it's got a long history. Wow. What an interesting story. Listen, uh, I want to bring Steve back in and see if he has any questions for you, Vincent, uh, or any, anything to share in terms of Masaro Farms. Uh, I think I think they have a, a modest uh, honeybee project there, so perhaps you could compare some notes. Sure. Yeah, well, we do, and I would say, you know, I've noticed actually just today how, how nice the white clover uh, is doing throughout our farm, throughout our, our you know, little backyard area, and, you know, we've seeded a lot of our roadways with a mix of the grasses and clovers, and I was just mowing an area where all of our crimson clover and some of the big mammoth red clover, you know, is sort of dried out and done. Uh, it has gone to seed and spread, but the white clover is just glorious right now. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of resources for the bees um, about the farm at the moment, but the dryness is definitely a concern, um, you know, in terms of keeping them healthy as well as all of our crops on the farm. Um, so, you know, which is a really different this time last year, we had about 10 inches of rain, I think, the weekend, the week of 4th of July. Um, so, you know, every year is different out there. As you mentioned, the climate change is bringing, you know, hotter and drier, but also these extreme weather events. Um, so it's a big difference from what we're seeing this time, you know, last year uh, than this year. And, and I don't know how that's impacting your honey. I, I can't say I've evaluated what we've got going on here in terms of our honey crop, but I'm curious how those, those differences in dry and wet, you know, from last year to this year have, have impacted uh, your harvest. Well, again, we haven't started harvesting yet, but one of the factors that we always, always uh, put in the formula uh, when we begin uh, an apiary or a new location for honeybees um, is the source of clean water. And so often um, we keep bees near reservoirs and uh, places that that have a a good source of water. And you'll often see at this time of year, but throughout the season, you'll see a, a sandy bank or some gravel uh, in the in the water areas, um, sometimes in the swampy areas, but you'll see you know blankets of honeybees land on the gravel and they're actually sucking the water out of the out of the uh, sand. Um, this way, they can get water needed for the hive and bring it back uh, without fear of drowning. Because of course they're little insects and and anytime they they put themselves at risk getting too close to the water, in they go, and then they've got to swim their way and hopefully they can get out. Um, so they often find themselves. You know, bird bass are sometimes uh, uh, inundated with honeybees at this time of year, and you'll, they love it because of the, the granular um, cement surface of the uh, bird baths, and they're actually sipping water and bringing it back to the hives. Um, as far as the honey goes and um, whether or not the dryness will affect it, the only thing, is, I mean, the honey, um, is, there's wet honey and dry honey, that usually has to do with a humid um, weather pattern. Um, anything that's blooming will produce nectar. Just how much of it, the quantity, is probably the issue. We had a very good weather pattern earlier uh, with the, um, the linden trees and the sourwoods in Connecticut. So um, we are expecting um, a very good harvest from those, and that's an excellent honey, the, um, the basswoods and the linden trees uh, in New Haven. Of course, there's Linden Street, and it's just uh, a row of you know, city blocks long of just linden trees, and it's you know, two blocks from my house and, and only a few blocks from some major bee yards that we have on the edge of New Haven um, at the reservoirs uh, and open spaces. 
And um, so we're expecting um, a very nice honey harvest. Even the hives that have swarmed earlier in this season, which, of course, we try to prevent so that we have the bees um, in order to gain a honey crop. Um, but it's, it's, it's not 100% foolproof, our methods. But So even the hives that have swarmed and started over, because, of course, it's a complex, complex conversation, but they start with a new queen, and they have to basically start the whole hive over. But at this point, those hives look like they are packed with bees and honey all over again. So, you know, we're we're very excited about what we have in front of us. We're a little um, fearful of the amount of work involved and uh, whether we can actually pull it off. So we're going to give it our, our best, that's for sure. Well, Vincent Kay, we want to thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for another wonderful bee report. It's always great to hear you. It's great to hear that sound of the wind blowing because we know that you're really out there in the fields and that, uh, you know, a little radio verite never hurts. So I think it's a, a pin oak tree that we're under, a big pin oak. Oh, and yeah. I think the wind, the wind keeps coming whistling through. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, thank you, Richard. Yeah. All right, Vincent Kay, proprietor of Swords into Pleasures Honey, with his bee report every first Thursday of the month on the Organic Farm Stand. Thank you, Vincent. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Ta- take care. All right. Well, uh, timing is pretty good today. We're uh, ready for our second interview of the day, and this is with Scott Nelson, who is an attorney with Public Citizens Litigation Group. Uh, Public Citizen is a public interest advocacy organization based in Washington with uh, chapters elsewhere. Scott Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's really great. Just a word about Scott to let you know that he's qualified to have the conversation we're about to have. He is an attorney with Public Citizen, as I mentioned, with the litigation group in Washington. And uh, he has a pro bono uh, public interest practice, including consumer law, campaign finance, finance regulations, class actions, arbitration, administrative law, regulation of hazardous products and substances, access to government records, <clears throat> energy regulation, environmental law, and he has argued in before, uh, I, I think you're... you're Resume here says you've argued uh, before the Supreme Court, and you have a, an appellate practice. So you, you've worked your way up the chain to uh, higher court levels. Uh, Scott Nelson, once again, thank you so much for being with us. We invited you here today because of this crisis that is now on the table. Yet another one generated by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, in this case, having to do with their curtailment of the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to pursue uh, their policies and regulations that would govern industries that generate green, greenhouse gas uh, issues and contribute to global warming. Uh, Scott, first of all, can you tell us what the sort of architecture and sinews of this Supreme Court decision are, and then perhaps we could deconstruct it a bit and talk about what the implications are for uh, the, the, the ability of Environmental Protection Agency to, to do its thing, so to speak. Sure. Uh, well, 
The case uh, is called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. And um, it has a sort of a convoluted history that I'll try to try to cover briefly, but hopefully clearly. Um, back in the uh, in the early 2000s, uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, established that the Environmental Protection Agency has authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions as pollutants. Uh, and after that happened, under the Obama administration, um, EPA came up with a plan for curtailing greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And the way that that, uh, that, that plan worked um, was, was not so much to limit what comes out of the stacks of each plant, but to try to shift the industry uh, so that it relied more on forms of, of, of power production that emit fewer greenhouse gases. It's a more effective strategy for, uh, for uh, combating emissions of greenhouse gases because it's, it's harder to sort of scrub those out of what comes out of a smokestack uh, and much easier to shift power production to cleaner power plants. That plan never actually went into effect. It was challenged in court and stayed. And then in the Trump administration, they replaced it with another plan that was less effective. It didn't rely on these measures to try to shift production. And the reason that EPA did that was that the Trump EPA announced that, uh, in their view, EPA lacked authority to do what it had done in the earlier plan and try to shift production to cleaner power plants. That plan, in turn, was challenged in court by environmentalists, and a federal appeals court in D.C. struck that down, holding that EPA did, in fact, have authority under the Clean Air Act to, to uh, enact a plan that, uh, that relied on shifting um, production as opposed to just capping emissions within the fence line of a particular power plant. That, plan, that decision, in turn, was challenged by a bunch of, of conservative states led by West Virginia. Uh, the Supreme Court accepted uh, their uh, appeal and just this past week ruled that the Court of Appeals was wrong, that EPA, in fact, does not have authority uh, to, uh, uh, to regulate emissions by trying to shift uh, power production from more polluting plants to less polluting plants. Uh, the irony of it all is that um, the industry itself had already shifted production so much that um, the, the, the goals of the Obama plan had been achieved seven years ahead of time, even though the plan never went into effect. So uh, in, in a way, the court was ruling on a case that um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people argued was moot, uh, but they reached out nonetheless and, uh, and ruled that EPA can't, um, can't use basically what is its most effective tool to combat global warm, warming uh, emissions from power plants. Well, it's fascinating and, as you said, ironic that the goal was achieved, uh, as you said, did you say seven years before it, it was uh, projected to, to be achieved? 
Yes, I, I think that's right. The the um, the goal was uh, was um, set for for twenty thirty, and it was it's projected that based on current uh, current uh, uh, power production techniques, it'll be achieved in twenty twenty three. Of course, the goal itself is is still insufficient. Um, hmm. To really meet our our need to cut uh, emissions of, of pollutants that cause global warming, um, so so the real effect of this decision is not not to um, not not to kind of stop what EPA had tried to do, which never was was even applied and uh, and um, you know is is kind of a moot issue now, but. What it's going to do is it's going to tie EPA's hands if EPA tries to uh, 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 to implement more aggressive measures that are really needed to uh, to make the further cuts in our greenhouse gas emissions that are going to be needed to to meet uh, goals of of limiting climate change. So, if you could, would you delineate a, a few of the things that EPA was considering uh, with you know since it, it its uh, basic mission has been restored by uh, by the Biden administration it was I think eviscerated to to a large degree by the Trump administration but now that it's back on track what are some of the things that it was would consider doing to further mitigate emissions well within the the um the power production sector, which remains one of the larger sources of, of greenhouse gas emissions, um, the agency had been deliberating on a new plan to replace both the Obama plan and the Trump plan, uh, and it hadn't yet uh, hadn't yet issued a proposal on it, so we don't really know the parameters. Uh, but our expectation would be that they would be trying to do something other than what uh, last week's decision essentially limits them to, which is just capping what any individual plant can emit within the limits of, of the technology available for doing that. So um, they're, they're probably right now going back to the drawing board. We hadn't really received the benefit of, of what they intended to do with that. But we do know that, that in other areas, um, using other Clean Air Act authority, um, EPA has um, uh, recently issued new regulations um, for greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles, and they are, um, there's a proposal on the table for limiting emissions from heavy trucks. And uh, automobiles and heavy trucks are also among the, the major um, sources of greenhouse gas emissions that uh, contribute to global warming uh, from the United States and also that EPA has authority to regulate. Um, I don't think that the, the decision um, uh, last week is going to directly affect what EPA is doing with respect to vehicles uh, because the decision was really um, at least, um, you know, directly limited to a particular provision of, of, the, of the Clean Air Act that deals with what are called stationary sources, that is, power plants and other 
pollution-emitting um, facilities that are, um, uh, you know, basically buildings, industrial facilities, things that don't move. And, and then their authority to regulate uh, mobile sources, mainly cars and, and trucks, is different. And the limit that the court imposed on their ability to regulate um, emissions from stationary sources really doesn't apply uh, to, to their regulation of cars and trucks. But the Supreme Court, on the way to issuing this ruling about one particular section of the Clean Air Act, also announced a much broader doctrine about how it's going to, um, how it's going to review uh, actions by regulators in the future that is going to have potentially large effects, uh, but um, hard, hard to foresee exactly how extensive they'll be. What the court said is that if an agency undertakes a, a, a major initiative to expand its regulation beyond uh, what, um, what limits have traditionally uh, been imposed on regulation in that area, the court is going to require a clear statement from Congress authorizing that expansion of, of the um, regulator's jurisdiction. So in the case of, of the power plants, they said, look, the, the language of this provision all talks about limiting emissions from sources. That to us sounds like um, some kind of regulation that is just going to say, looking at an individual source, what can you do to limit the amount of, of pollutant that is coming out of that particular location? not regulating a whole industry to shift its production from one source to another. Uh, and, and so we don't see in the legislation that Congress authorized clearly the agency to take that major new step. With respect to the, to the regulation of vehicles, to me, it doesn't look like the agency has stepped beyond uh, the traditional scope of its authority to limit the emissions that come out of cars and trucks, because the regulations it's issued have basically said, you know, your fleet of vehicles can only uh, emit this much greenhouse gas. And that's the same way that they have regulated emissions from vehicles for years. Uh, but we already do know that... Um, that there are some um, some states, uh, once again led by states with uh, Republican attorneys general, in this case Ohio, um, that are challenging uh, EPA's um, auto emissions uh, regulations. Ohio and Texas, in particular, are among the leaders in in challenging EPA's actions in this area, and they're going to argue that this new major questions doctrine. Um, also applies here, and that EPA has somehow overstepped. And I think what they're going to say is that, uh, that the reason that the, the doctrine, in their view, should apply is that EPA's regulations rely on the expectation that automakers are going to make more electric vehicles. And in their view, that goes beyond EPA's authority to just limit emissions uh, from particular categories of vehicles. So that's going to be the battle there. Uh, I don't think they're going to win that one. 
um, the, the court in this decision said that this new doctrine that it announced applies only in extraordinary cases. And in most cases, um, agencies are acting within the scope of, of their statutory authority as it's traditionally been understood. And in theory, this decision won't apply when agencies are, are, are you know, staying in their lane, essentially. Um, but the problem is whether, uh, whether a case represents a major expansion of regulatory authority or whether it's more or less um, business as usual and an incremental expansion within the scope of agency authority is in the eye of the beholder. And um, in this case, uh, with, uh, with six conservative justices on the Supreme Court, um, uh, they're probably going to see more things as being major expansions of regulatory authority than I would. And it looks like it's going to come down to what Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts think, because they're the ones who sort of hold the balance of, of, of power on this issue. And in, in this case last week, um, they, uh, they applied this new requirement that Congress has to clearly authorize uh, regulatory actions to something that to me looked like it was well within the scope of EPA's uh, statutory authority. So if they did it there, they may do it again. Um, that's, uh, that it just adds a new tool to the arsenal of uh, industry and uh, right-wing um, states and uh, uh, advocacy groups to, uh, to argue against any regulation that they don't like. We were speaking with Scott Nelson who is an attorney with Public Citizens Litigation Group. And uh, Scott is talking about this uh, ruling that came down from the Supreme Court, I, I guess it was last week, uh, limiting the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating uh, power plant emissions. <clears throat> um, you, you said that it, this case really was specifically focused on... on a, a very circumscribed uh, part of of that that issue, uh, and you are now saying that you don't think there, there's a good chance that the auto emissions issue would uh, would not be uh, let's say slammed down or, or you know or shut down by this by this ruling. But that there are <laughs> attorneys general just licking their chops to, to be able to go to court and try to stop uh, any regulations that uh, actually are these um, regulations that you speak of, are they actually in extant now or are they uh, projected for the, the future? The one, the one for cars and, and what are called light trucks. Um, you know, essentially SUVs and, and pickup trucks. Um, that one went into effect um, earlier this year, and it's been challenged already by um, by a coalition of, of Republican state attorneys general and um, some some um, uh, right wing um, advocacy groups. Uh, so that is that case is pending in a court of appeals in Washington D.C. They've indicated 
that they, even before this decision, that they intended to to make the same kind of argument invoking this new doctrine that, mm. that is labeled the major questions doctrine. So that'll be that'll be one of the first tests of, of how far this goes. Wow. Um, I, I, my view is is um, uh, that that on on this one, the court is going to look at um, the court of appeals, and ultimately, if it goes to the Supreme Court, the court is going to look at what the agency has done and say that they see a sufficient authorization by Congress for what for what the agency for the way the agency has regulated in this area. But, you know, any time you give, um, you give uh, advocates um, an opportunity to, to raise a new, a new kind of argument against regulation, they're going to use it, and they're going to use it aggressively. And um, it's also likely to, uh, to affect uh, the way regulators act to make them a little bit uh, more risk averse and and you know they're always looking over their shoulders thinking about um, how what they do is going to be challenged in court down the road uh, uh-huh. and and so they may hedge and trim a little bit in light of this ruling but the the, the uh, auto emissions regulation is already out there and so it's a target but uh, but I think uh, I think one that we and and EPA and and others are going to be um, uh, doing our best to defend in light of this new ruling and and think we've we've got a pretty good chance at at uh, helping in this case to establish some limits to what the Supreme Court has just done. Excellent. Thank you, Steve Nelson, and uh, also uh, Steve. I'm, I'm sorry, Scott Nelson and Steve Mono. Uh, That wraps it up for the Organic Farm Stand for this week. Uh, We will uh, be back in two weeks. And my name is Richard Hill. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.